You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Tell me, think about a time when you lost confidence. Think about a time maybe not too far ago in your life or, or maybe years past where you lost confidence in something. Maybe you lost confidence in someone, right? Think about that. Some people went to some dark places uh, <laughs> right there. Well, maybe you lost confidence in yourself, right? So I have a, a quick story. In, in my notes, I, I put this as orthodontist appointment of shame, all right? So, you know, I was talking to Arvo this morning. He kind of knows my, my style here. It's a little self-deprecation to start up, and then we're going to build it up. So, uh, orthodontist appointment of shame. I was blessed as a kid to have braces, okay? My parents uh, provided that for me, and so you, kinda, you know how it goes after school. My mom would pick me up from school and take me to my appointment. Where we had, where I got my braces, this was like a pretty state-of-the-art uh, facility, I guess. I don't know. It's just an open room. Okay, I'm trying to paint the picture for you. It was an open room, and there were about eight to ten chairs, like dental office, orthodontist office chairs, and they were all facing this big wall of windows. So you're kind of all out in the open with everybody, but you're looking out the window, and so there's very, very little privacy in, in this situation, right? And there's just people just, you know, all in people's business in their mouth, and you're just kind of walking into that scenario. Well, my previous orthodontist appointment did not go well, okay? And so, like I said, I'm, I'm fifth, sixth grade, uh, Brett Barton at this time, and these guys were ruthless, okay? They, they were going to make sure that your oral hygiene was up to par, and they, if you didn't meet their standard, they were going to let you know about it. And so what happened in this last, my, the, the previous orthodontist appointment was I go in there, and sure enough, there's like two people in the orthodontist office that I know from school, okay? I don't know if you know anything about the self-confidence of a middle schooler, uh, not super high or to begin with, but I'm going in there, and all these people, there's people from other schools, I mean, it's a packed house for some reason. I get to my turn, and they're, they're telling me, and they just reamed me, okay? They just laid it on thick. You've got to do a better job brushing and flossing, under your braces, you know, it's just, this is a poor effort, Brett. As the performer that I am, I was bound and determined that I am not going to have this report again, okay? To the point where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my tail off until my next uh, orthodontist appointment, you know? So finally, the day comes, my, my next one is up. So, I'm so nervous, I'm so worked up, it has scarred me so bad that I didn't eat lunch, Okay? I don't know if you know from my body type, but that is not a, that's a big deal if I, if I miss food, okay? So we're there, and I, it's after school, but I'm like jittery, right? I haven't eaten. And so kind of what, I threw out all of my, my planning, right? I'm going to have a, just a fresh set of chompers, right? Fresh set of braces. I'm going in, and they are not going to say anything about me. But I am 
shaking, right? So thankfully, my mom had a zebra cake. I inhaled a zebra cake, right, which is probably good right before an orthodontist appointment. But I was still hungry, and so she had her, my mom's choice of uh, snack is always popcorn. She's, like, got popcorn all, uh, everywhere, right? I don't know if you know anything about popcorn in Northern Ireland. So I, I hammer some popcorn, right? And I'm like, it's all right. I'll just swish some water in my mouth, right? Do a little swish with water. I'll be good, okay? So I get in there finally, um, cleaning and checkup time, and they're, you know, up in my business. It's, again, for some reason, everyone has scheduled their orthodontist appointment at the same time I had scheduled mine. And so I got all my peers. I got some classmates in there with me, and I'm like, Please be a good report. Please be a good report. Please be a good report. I don't know if I can take this anymore. And so I'm there, and they're like, man, Brett, good job. Seems like you've really taken to heart what we told you. Good job. Well done. I'm like fist pumping in the, in the chair. But then they're like, you know, we have to ask, though, when was the last time you had popcorn? And I said, oh, man, overlooking the snack that I just had, all right? I said, oh, it's probably been, it's probably been, it's probably been a month. And there was a verbal disgust from whoever was cleaning my teeth at the time. They're like, oh, a month? As they like pick a, uh, you know, a popcorn kernel out of my braces, right? And I'm like mortified. They're like, you haven't had popcorn in a month, and there's some right now in your brain. You get the picture I'm putting? I am mortified, okay? I am mortified. I have lost all confidence in myself. I'm, I'm like thinking, did I, did I even brush my teeth this past month? Like, do I even own a toothbrush? I don't even know anymore. My, 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 my vision of reality is totally messed up because I overlooked a simple mistake, right? I had lost confidence because something happened. And I, I say this silly in a self-deprecating way. To similarly, in Hosea, God is pouring out judgment and wrath and punishment on them because ultimately they lost confidence in their God and we see what unfolds in the scriptures. To that end, we are not that far removed from the people we read about in today's chapter and what we're reading through in the book of Hosea the Israelites, they hadn't just flirted with this lack of confidence in the Lord. They hadn't just flirted that, well, maybe God is holding something back from us. They hadn't just flirted with that. They had slept with it, to use the analogy of Hosea and his life. So as we look through the text today, I want you to examine this for yourself. And like I said, this extension from chapter 9... <coughs> There's a unique style of this chapter that within the judgments of God are pictures of agriculture that follow, followed by pictures of war. And this is significant as we see the big picture of redemption unfold. So let's just dive in. We're going to go through these verses. Verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear the guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Now I'm not 
I have a little uh, raised bed at the house, a little raised bed garden. You know, I'm not a big farmer, but I, it does, you don't have to be a great farmer to understand the natural common sense of planting and harvesting, right? If you plant pumpkin seeds, you aren't going to get apples, right? It will be foolish for you if you planted corn to be mad that you don't get wheat. That'd be silly, right? Makes sense. Well, the same understanding is shown in James chapter 3. And we, we see James chapter 3, he's talking about taming the tongue. He says this, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now in the same way that these physical agricultural laws are true, physically they're also true spiritually. I think that's what we see in our day in the text today the israelite way of life had been known that their help comes from the lord this is this is the way of life right every every festival every tent of meeting every law is based around the fact of celebrating god for his provision and trusting and hoping in him for all that they have right this is the way of life for the israelite and yet their laws, but we, as we read through Hosea and what we read here, the people were more and more corrupted at a spiritual level. As the material fruit, if you will, of their life, of their people, as that increased, we see a division and a seeking of something else other than the one who provided it, right? And so to that, their confidence had shifted and was no longer on the Lord. Where they were confident once before and celebratory once before, they had not been. The better off they were, the less they looked to God in gratitude for what he supplied. I ask us this morning, is that not us? Think about it. Hasn't this, isn't it interesting that from the beginning, from the beginning, this is the problem. From the beginning we see in the garden the greatest time of plenty in human existence. There's nothing that could have been of need and yet what happens? We want more. We want something else. And the lie that is believed from the beginning at the very heart and the very nature of sin and contentment is trust and confidence that God will truly satisfy us. The lie, the beginning lie, was what was called into question was that God was holding something back. God is holding something back from them. God is holding something back from us. We must seek something else. This is the heart of sin. And this is the heart of the sin we see in, Hose excuse me, in Hosea. It didn't take long for Adam and Eve to lose confidence in God when they had all the confidence in the world to believe that he would supply. So what does it say? The more the fruit increased, the more altars were built. The more the countries improved, more pagan pillars were erected. This is showing that the heart of the people, they were not loyal to the Lord. The fruit of their actions so show their thinking that there is something that could replace God's presence. Now this is true of the testimony of Jesus as well. 
right? And you remember the story of the triumphal entry when he is entering Jerusalem and he's hungry and he sees the fig tree. Do you remember the story? It's from, I pulled it from Matthew 21, verses 18 and 19. It should be up here. Verse 18 says, In the morning he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. You know, I'd read that passage a handful of times and never quite understood it until I read this quote from an author, Dr. Larry Crabb, and his insight into this passage, I think, really connects with what we're dealing with, the luxuriant vine of Israel in Hosea's time. He says this, When he, Jesus, pushed back the leaves and found no figs, he exploded. You'll never bear fruit again. Why? Was it petulant rage, what a spoiled child might do to her mother when she said, no more cookies? Of course not. When he saw leaves, the evidence of life, but, no, but found no fruit, no life to enjoy, I think he felt the father's pain. When the fruit of material blessing and prosperity was upon the land of Israel, what were they met with? They were met with no spiritual life. They had run and clung to other gods, other idols, in hopes that that would satisfy, that that would fulfill. So I ask, what about us today? What can we learn from this today? It should serve today, October 2023, as a warning against becoming accustomed to thinking too highly of ourselves and remember that every good thing is from the Lord. He is the giver of all good things. Right? Us as children of God, delivered and redeemed into His mercy and into His family, we ought to be the most grateful people on the planet. Every good thing that you have is from the Lord. Everything. And Israel had forgotten that. And I think if we take a little bit of self-examination, we might see that we forget that as well. When fruit is increased in your life, are you building altars in your heart to things that aren't God? The question I pose to you. Verse 3, For now they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? And hear arrogance. The previous five kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, starting with Jeroboam the first, they had all been bad. They had not followed the Lord. They had not sought his face. And so there is no excuse for them to say, although that is true, there is no excuse for them to say, for we do not fear the Lord. John Piper says, you obey what you fear. You think about that in a, in a negative sense. You think about the trial of Jesus, right? And Pilate, who does he fear? you got the, the Lord of Lords standing before him, right? But he fears the crowd. And what does he do with the crowd? He obeys what they want, not the creator of him, right? No confidence, no fear, no obedience. You can kind of follow the progression of Israel. Verse 4, they utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants so judgments spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrow of the field. The furrow is, you think of a plow cutting through the kind of little trench that it makes. That's the furrow of the field. 
you know, we could say that the most unchristian or most unchristlike thing that we can do is when we say one thing and we do another. When we say, I will do this or I won't do this, and then we do another. Why? Because that's not our Lord. One of my, the first passages that I ever memorized was what I thought to be an obscure passage in Numbers 23. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? These rhetorical questions are to bring us to mind the character of our unchanging God. And so when we bear false witness, this could be shining a, a, a negative light on our Lord. Verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria, now Samaria was the royal city of Israel. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Now the, the calf, right, that should set off some alarms in your uh, Bible understanding, right? Beth-Avon is the epicenter of uh, wickedness, the house of wickedness <coughs> for the people. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for all has, has departed, for it has departed from them. Excuse me. The thing, the calf, itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. We see here, the very thing that represented evil in the wilderness after Exodus was back again. Right? We see calf, that should be red alert, red alert, red alert. Bad news. Bad news. The first symbol of idolatry. The first time that Israel really committed spiritual adultery against God is back. And the people aren't just sad that it's gone. They're mourning after it. They're longing for it. They're so distraught that this is no longer in their city center. They have deep grief for more of they're grieved by the loss of this figure rather than the grief of the loss of communion with the living God. And if we're honest, we can do this too, right? You know, we can say things like, you know, I know God said this, and I know He's a provider, and I, and I know that the Bible tells me this, but, right? We put a little stock in yeah but i'm i'm doing the right stuff i yeah but my my family my job my power my security whatever it is you're putting your stock in your faith in your hope in your trust in your confidence in not him i heard someone say when you're giving your opinion you could say all these things you're like you know this and this and this but this and this and this and this, right? They say that whatever comes before the but really isn't true. You heard that? I don't know. I don't know if I believe that, but um, it is a heart check. It is a heart check, right? To think, are we justifying our sin and our trust and our confidence in something other than the Lord? <coughs> Excuse me. Israel's trust was that the Assyrians would be their security. 
Turning to the Assyrians implied not only a strategic alliance with a neighboring country, but they also, this symbolized that they are submitting that the Assyrian gods, lower G gods, would supply something that Jehovah would not by doing this. When clear spiritual adultery is being shown, it's almost always followed up by how God will respond and how he'll deal with it. So let's keep going. Verse 7, Samaria's king shall perish. Like a twig on the face of the waters, the high places of Avon, Avon means wickedness, the high places of wickedness, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle, we think of thorn and thistle, we think the image of persistence. Like you, you can't stop weeds from growing, right? Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars and they shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There, have, there they have continued. Shall not war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? This is a cross-reference to a very, very, very sad story in Judges. Judges chapter 19. This is a story of civil war, civil unrest. Is one of the most, it's just very, very dark. Uh, a story of a man and uh, his concubine come into a city and they're looking for rest and no one will take them home. And in this, in the morning, uh, a farmer a, a, a local man says, no, come on, come into this. And then the, some of the local men try to um, forcefully bring both men out to rape them and pillage them. It's an awful story. But instead, they, they say, no, 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 and they, they throw out the women. It's very, very tragic, and God hates it. But this caused war to fall on Gibeah, civil war. And it says, when I please, verse 10, when I please, I will discipline them. The nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. This is where we see what has been foreshadowed through the book of Hosea. God will use war to accomplish his punishment, his judgment on the northern kingdom. War, and it's, it's a little bit ironic, right, that the, the war with the country that they have aligned and partnered themselves with. The will of God will be done. He will use the obedience of his people or he will use the conquest of the enemy. We know this to be true historically. You know, we, we, a little recap in our Bible history, right? After the time of the judges uh, came a time of the kings. The people longed for a king like the rest of the world had, less the rest of the countries had. After four kings, this fell apart. And the country of Israel split in the northern kingdom Israel that we read Hosea is a prophet to in the southern kingdom of Judah. We know in roughly 720 B.C. is when Assyria came in and eradicated uh, the northern kingdom, put them in captivity, and they were again slaves and prisoners to a foreign people. Now, when it says double iniquity, we need to think back to the imagery of Hosea's wife, Gomer. The life, uh, Hosea's wife, and or, I'm sorry, life and how it paints for us this picture. His wife, Gomer, not only commits adultery on various occasions, but then she doubles down and starts working a life of prostitution after she has been redeemed. This is, this is very painful imagery. Verse 11. Ephraim was a trained calf 
that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness on you. Now there's significance to the yoke. We know, we often talk about it in uh, marriage counseling, right? To not be um, uh, married or yoked to an unbeliever, right? The, you know, the picture of a yoke is uh, two cattle uh, working together to plow a field. And so if one's doing one thing and another's doing another thing, that's difficult, right? Well, he's talking here that uh, Israel, oftentimes he, Hosea calls Israel Ephraim, um, will be yoked to the Assyrians in a sense. Their wish has come true. They are partnered with this thing, but it isn't going to be for their good like they assume it is. And then we get to verse 12, and we can kind of have all, an all, all have a collective exhale, right? Okay, some kind of good word here, right? We've been reading chapters of Hosea of judgment, the wrath of God, and we're not going to shy away from the wrath of God as we open up God's word and we go left to right because good news is only good news when you see rightly the bad news, amen? So verse 12, in all of this book, we see this nugget of appeal Page after page of reading God's wrath, we see this fall upon. It's like Hosea is, is, is here and then he comes in close. Says, look, look at what's happening. The prophet appealed to the Israelites again to repent. Breaking up uncultivated ground is what a farmer does when he plows land that has remained untouched for a long time. Right? Is there untouched ground in your heart? Is there untouched land that hasn't been plowed up, that hasn't been brought to the surface? And if so, I ask you, why? What areas of your life have you left untouched? That's off limits, God. Now this is a figure for confessing sin and exposing them to God when they have remained unconfessed they've remained under the surface of life for a long time and oftentimes when we we live our life and we uh, have uncultivated ground and it keeps getting pushed down deeper and deeper and the ground around it is hard and hard and hard it's it's easier and easier and easier to leave it alone we right am i right right some people say everyone's got skeletons in their closet right that might be true but not everyone in the world has a God who knows every detail of your closet. All right? So, when was the last time you broke up that ground in your heart? When was the last time you allowed someone in to help you break up that ground? A trusted companion, a trusted friend to truly examine yourself. This is significant. Now, he says this. It is time to seek the Lord. This is a great appeal, family, brothers and sisters. Hosea's solution to their sin problem, it was echoed by all the other prophets of his time. Isaiah says this in chapter 55. Amos says this in chapter 5. Isaiah 55 and Amos 5. They say their appeal is seek the Lord. It's so simple. So simple, but oftentimes is very, very difficult to do, right? 
the application. Seek the Lord. And here's the thing. Good community and good leadership will always bring you back to this point. If you're surrounding yourself with with, uh, men and women who care about you, marker that they do care about you is they are going to push you to seek the Lord. Not to seek them, not to seek conventional wisdom, not to just stay the course, but to seek the Lord. That is always what is best. This truth is always applicable. It's always a good time to seek the Lord. You know, I hear, I hear often when I'm talking to people, it's like, I, you don't need some holy momentum. You don't need to like kind of stack up a couple good days and a couple good weeks before you can fully pump it out and start, I'm going to seek the Lord now. Now that I kind of got my ducks in a row, like that is crap. Seek the Lord now. If you're asking the question when, when, the answer is always now. Now is the time to seek the Lord. And pardon me for my crass agriculture language there. Hosea in his appeal is bringing the people to a point of decision. And as we continue on, Jesus does this in his ministry. I'm going to ask some probing questions. Maybe these are questions that you follow up with at Gospel Community this week. I'd love for you to discuss this. Are you dissatisfied with God's love? How might your life show that you are dissatisfied? You know, we live in this, uh, I love Amazon. I love the convenience that it's brought to our life. You know, it's like, boom, can get us in trouble sometimes, right, for the amount of online shopping we do. But it's, for the most part, brought this um, very convenient uh, store and everything. But we kind of live in that life, right? If something's not good, what do we do? Well, send it back. Refund. Super easy, right? We just go to the next product. Ah, this one only got 70% five-star ratings. I'm going to go to the one that has 72 five-star ratings. 72% five-star ratings. We kind of have this idea of measuring up because it makes us feel like we are the kings and the queens of our life. This isn't true, y'all. If we examine that style of life when it comes to our spiritual walk, if we examine that, how, what does it say about our view of God? What does it say about our view of God when we have the mindset, it's here for me, God is here for me, it's here to do what I ask, because essentially God is my genie. Right? Maybe, I might suggest, you really don't know what you need. Maybe you really don't know what you want. Maybe other things end up letting you down because it isn't the thing that you truly need. Have you grown empath- I'm sorry, have you grown apathetic? toward the love of God for you? I know there was a time in your life when it was celebrated and you enjoyed, and we sing songs and we pray prayers that say, restore to us the joy of our salvation because that's our story, isn't it? Has your heart wandered away from God? All probing questions, all good self-examination that we ought to look at. But when we ask these things, this should signal to us 
that in some way we have lost confidence that our God will satisfy, that our God will meet our need. Pastor Adam, this week we were, I was sitting in the office preparing and he comes up and he's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, maybe two, three weeks ago now he preached a sermon, he said this, and it's like, man, that's gold. He said, before the idol is made by our hands, we have decided it's worth worshiping. Before the idol is made by our hands, we have decided it is worth worshiping. In other words, external actions of sin are the tip of an iceberg revealing the truth that at some point you believe the lie that God cannot or will not meet your needs. To stick with the agriculture analogy, the fruit that has shown at harvest is revealing something that went in the ground a long time ago. So, what ground needs to be plowed? What ground needs to be turned up? It was evident in the lives of the Israelites that they felt that they had struck gold. And they had on the outside. They had struck gold in their prosperity, their military might, their agriculture. They didn't need God anymore. Their needs and desires had been met put this back on us in our own ways have we done the same thing have we done the same thing i need god for salvation and mercy but you know i've got this parenting thing figured out you know the joy of the lord is my strength but you know i'm pretty strong at my job i need help in that area john piper says it like this christianity is a divine project in replacing inferior joys in inferior objects with superior joys in God himself. Verse 13. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, and you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off. So yet again, here in Isaiah, we end the chapter with judgment and impending doom. This is a sobering word. This is a sobering word. If it isn't to you, then... Check yourself out. (laughs) Instead of plowing righteousness and reaping kindness, the Israelites had plowed wickedness and reaped injustice. Instead of eating the fruit of righteousness, they eaten the fruit of lies. They had done this because, again, at some point, their confidence had been found somewhere other than God. And it's such a subtle little thing. Seeds are pretty small. But then as you see them grow and grow and grow and then fruit happens, it can get much bigger. When we read of the Lord's inevitable judgment, we have to understand, and this is, that this is still true today, and this is kind of a hard, hard word I need to share with us, is that the hard truth is that this reality of hope we have, that we are accepted before God, and accepted is only our acceptance by God, for his, un- his coming judgment is only for those of us who are found in Christ. 
See, God's judgment is still coming. God's judgment is still coming. The final day of judgment. We have hope and we rejoice as those found in Christ because he took our judgment. He took the punishment that we deserved. But there is a a dead and dying world around us that doesn't know this truth. So, judgment is still coming, but the hope of the believer is that the good judge will look at the record of Jesus when judgment is made final. So we cling to him. Let me end here with our hope. I said at the beginning, my aim was to look at how we are quite similar to the northern kingdom, but in this way we are quite different, and this should breathe wind into our sails this morning, I hope. Adam and I, we were, we were talking this week, and we were, we were talking about how even the use of agricultural terms as an analogy to help understand these spiritual truths. This is a great grace of the Lord to show his character and patience, right? That he is always allowing room for repentance. When you plant something, there's always time where you can pull it out of the ground, right? There's a lot more immediate ways of judgment than letting something die in the ground and come to life like planting, like agriculture, right? There's a singer-songwriter that I really enjoy. He has these lyrics I've been thinking about all week. And the, the title of the song is called Let the Ground Rest. And he has this, uh, this lyric, it says, So don't you find it strange that God, he made four seasons and only one's spring. I think that's a pretty profound statement of God's character and patience with us in, our, in his forbearance and his loving kindness of us for when we sow seeds, we believe, we drink the lies down like Israel had before. But God's patience and his grace through the judgments, God is good, and it is good of God to punish evil. It doesn't make him a bad guy. He is doing the right thing by punishing evil, even when that evil is done by his own people. We read of this wicked generation, but there are still markers. This is the hope that we have, church. As we read Hosea and we read some of these harsh punishments, harsh judgments in the Old Testament, there are still markers along the way like verse 12, that say, come home. Now is the time to seek the Lord. Now is the time. There's another quote, not really a quote, a line from a song. That first song, Let the Ground Rest, we probably won't sing it in here, but um, it's a great song. Uh, but this song, this, this lyric of this song, maybe you'll hear it next week. Wink, 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 wink. But this line in the song, it says this. There's future grace that's mine today that Jesus Christ has won. You, church, have future grace that's yours right now 
because of Jesus Christ. Amen? To wrap up and to set us up for chapter 11 next week, here's what I want to do. As we listen to God, we're going to begin to see kind of a shift towards the end, towards 11, (coughs) towards the end of the book, is that God cannot deny his justice. He hates evil, but he because he's just, but he is also love and he's also merciful. And so we see this dilemma, we see this kind of catch 44, catch 22, what is it, 22? We, always, we see this, what's going on here, right? I don't know my numbers, you know. That God is both loving towards his people and just towards his people. The answer, the solution must be found in himself alone. So I close with that. God can be both merciful and just, and he's not going to settle on one or the other. That's great hope for us Christians. That's great hope for us as we go. He doesn't settle because he displays simultaneously his love and justice in the greatest act of all existence at the cross. So that's what I want to leave you with, that taste in your mouth, to look your eyes on Jesus. Turn your eyes to him. Now is the time to seek the Lord. Let me pray.